Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for January 15th, 2018. On today's show, we're going to be diving into a little bit of news, including a Superman Red Sun movie, a John Wick and uh, Monsters TV series. And in our feature presentation, Jacob Hall talks about his top 10 films of 2017. This is Peter Serrata, and joining me for the news is Slash Film Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And Slash Home Senior Writer, Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? It's Sundance week, guys. We're prepping for Sundance. Uh, the the vast majority of the Slash Home staff are going to Park City. Um, and uh, news is notoriously slow uh, in January, as it is during uh, Sundance week. But we have a couple of news items, because the Television Critics Association is going on. Uh, so we have some stuff from TV and uh and some other stuff, but let's let's start this with uh, Superman Red Sun, which we've talked about on the podcast in the past, um, it, it, which is a uh, a graphic novel in the DC Comics uh, universe. Um, it it seems that it might be getting made into a DC animated movie. Brad, what do we know? Yeah, um, it looks like right now that it's it's just a possibility or maybe more so of a hope. Um, so this past weekend, there was a special DC in DC event that took place in Washington, DC, where they had um, there's this special like exhibit opening up at the or they had a special event at the museum in Washington, DC. And along with it came the premiere of the new DC Comics animated movie Batman Gotham by Gaslight. Uh, so Bruce Tim who is the executive producer of that movie and has long worked on uh, things like Batman, the animated series and a bunch of other DC animated movies was there for a Q and a, he was asked uh, after Batman Gotham, by gaslight, which of the uh, other Elseworlds comics, which are storylines that take place outside of the usual DC universe canon, he would like to turn into an animated movie. And his answer was Superman red sun, which is a really cool three issue arc that imagines a reality where Kal-El, instead of landing in Kansas, in the United States of America, actually lands in the Soviet Union in the 1950s. And he's raised there uh, in a collective, and he grows up to sort of be this symbol of hope for the Soviet Union instead of the United States. 
Uh, so Tim said that this is the one that he it, hopes- it, And in that comic, Lex Luthor ends up being like the good guy in America. Yes, yeah, yeah. and that also features uh, Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, Brainiac, and some other DC characters. Uh, so it's this really interesting uh, alternate what-if kind of story, and that's the one that Bruce Tim wants to turn into an animated movie. But it's um, what he sounds like. What he said is that it kind of depends on how the audiences and fans receive Gotham by Gaslight, because that's actually that was the first Elseworlds comic that was ever published, and this is the first Elseworlds movie that they've done. So if fans respond to it well, then they might start considering doing some of the other Elseworlds storylines for animated movies, which I think would be pretty cool. I mean, I like these DC animated movies, but I was kind of hoping that Red Sun would eventually be made into a live action movie. Like, I know we've talked we talked about past in, on the podcast of like what DC uh, movies should be made. And this was one of them. It's always been like one of my favorite DC stories. And I think it could uh, c- kind of be this cool alternate history version of Superman. Um, I mean, I don't know. Like, wh- what do you think? Does making this as an animated feature mean that they will not do it as a feature as a live action feature? I mean, I don't necessarily see it as being a viable big screen live action feature simply because, you know, when it comes to Superman, like that's a franchise and I'm just not so sure that audiences are, you know, outside of maybe the more hardcore DC fans are interested in seeing such a strange alternate take on Superman like this. Um, You know, it might, we're, we're talking about, you know, when you see the way studios approach franchises and like trying to make things less confusing for them, like this is something that probably would like oh for really sure confusing for a lot of people. So I'm just not sure that you know Warner Brothers would see it as a viable you know box office draw for people yeah. to come see this. So it, w- one thing I would like to see though is because even DC does do a good job with their animated movies for for what they are as far as straight to video releases, but I almost wish that they would spend a little more money on some of these animated movies and create something akin to what Sony is doing with Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, you know, with different animation styles. And they are starting to do a little bit of that because they have that uh, that um, Batman anime that's coming out soon. And so I-, I wonder if maybe now they're getting to the point where they're going to start expanding into different kinds of, you know, animation genres, maybe mix it up a little bit more. Because uh, that's something that I would like to see happen. Yeah, and I, I mentioned earlier that the Television Critics Association is currently going on in Los Angeles, and uh, some news has gotten out of that. Uh, some big screen movies that are being turned into uh, small screen uh, TV series, and uh, the first of which is John Wick. Uh, we've talked about a possible John Wick television show in the past, uh, and now we know it's actually in development as stars. Ben, what do we know about the show? We know that the show is going to be called The Continental, and it is named after the lavish hotel that assassins in the John Wick movie universe use as sort of a a base of operations, a a refuge of sorts. Uh, The Continental is going to be set in a version of a hyper real version of Los Angeles instead of New York City, which is where the first John Wick takes place. And uh, the second film, John Wick Chapter 2, sort of a... Go, bounces over to Italy for a little while before returning to New York. So I think that this is going to be the first time that we see uh, what L.A. looks like in the John Wick universe. Um, at the time of the announcement of this show, we discovered that Chris Collins is going to be writing it and serving as the showrunner, which is a little surprising. Uh, Collins wrote um, Sons of Anarchy, and he was a writer on The Wire. Uh, Derek Kolstad is the writer of the movies, he wrote the first and second script 
for the the films. And I think he's just going to be on board here as an executive producer. Chad Stahelski, who co-directed the first movie and directed the second film on his own, is going to be directing the pilot of the show. And uh, I think it was the the president of Stars. I think his name is Chris Albrecht. Uh, he had a quote about what the Continental is going to be like. He said, "This series is truly unlike anything else on TV. The Continental promises to include the thunderous fight sequences and intensely staged shootouts between professional assassins and their targets that fans have come to expect in the John Wick movie franchise, as well as introducing some new, darkly compelling characters who inhabit this underground world." So that sounds pretty cool to me. Uh, the obvious follow-up questions that a lot of people have are what is going to be, you know, is Keanu Reeves going to be reprising his role as John Wick in the show? Um, we have a reporter on the ground at the TCAs, the Television Critics Association, who actually managed to corner uh, the president of original programming at Stars and asked this question. And um, they said that uh, Keanu is an executive producer on the movie. And the quote was, I think you can expect to see him at some point in the series that is part of the ongoing conversation. Um, we have also learned there's a lot of information about this show. I feel like I'm talking a lot, but just want to get yeah. all this out there. Uh, we've also learned that um, the show is going to be Let's see, what's the exact phrasing here? Uh, the main character of the Continental will be a new character that enters this world. The official quote is, he won't be an assassin at the very beginning. I don't want to give too much about the story away, but it's somebody who is new to the world. His origin story, when you go back to the beginning, unknown to him, has some ties to the world. Um, we also know this is going to be told in present day, so it's sort of going to be like a parallel uh, track to the movies. There was some rumors maybe that that the show might be a prequel involving Keanu's character you know before he got into the events of the movies now we know that these are uh, that's not really true this is going to be put on sort of a parallel track there and then also Ian McShane who uh, stars in the film, uh, both films actually, as Winston, the manager of the New York version of the Continental, uh, is supposed to be, you know, theoretically coming back. The quote there is, uh, there are certainly conversations about having Ian McShane back. The good part is we have some of uh, some sort of insight into his schedule because of our involvement in American Gods. We're in conversations with Ian. So he's working on American Gods, which is also a show on stars. All of this basically means, damn it, I'm going to have to get a subscription <laughs> to Stars because now I really want to watch this John Wick TV show. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, John Wick Chapter 2, the great thing that that film did was like the world building and creating that kind of the the the, the world of that story. I mean, the, the first film had great action, but this this film kind of, uh, you know, expanded that world and the rules of that world. And I want to see more of it in this TV show. Uh, is promising to give me more of it. Uh, and I think that's probably the good way to go with these movies to TV show adaptations is to pick movies that have like an interesting world. It's not really about the, the characters so much. And, yeah. uh, you know, we, we that, that's a good segue into another movie that is becoming a TV series, and that is Gareth Edwards' Monsters. Uh, Brad, what do we know? Oh, man, they're turning Monsters into a TV series? <laughs> It's going to be awesome. I mean, Brad, uh, <laughs> you did write this up for the site over the weekend, I think. Uh, of course I did. No, it's, um, yeah, this is something that's actually been developing uh, ever since Monsters was a big hit. There were always talks after the movie was came this, like, kind of uh, acclaimed indie darling that they were going to do a sequel and they were going to do a oh, TV series. We should say what Monsters is because some people probably haven't seen it. 
Yeah, so uh, Monsters is this movie that came out in 2010 that was the breakthrough film of Rogue One and Godzilla director Gareth Edwards. Um, it's it's an indie movie. It was made on a very low budget. Uh, it follows Scoot McNary, um, who you might have seen in uh, Batman uh, v Superman and Argo and some other movies, as this uh, American photojournalist who has to escort his employer's daughter back to the United States and that requires crossing an infected zone that is full of these strange creatures that have somehow at some point arrived on Earth um, and are in between Mexico and the United States. And it's this very interesting world that Gareth Edwards created. That was kind of one of the most compelling things about the movie is he created this lived-in world where it has established that there was this strange zone with monsters and the we were kind of dealing with them as a society and a, a, a planet and a, and a nation and so um people were excited obviously to explore this world a little bit more thoroughly so there was talk of a sequel there was talk of a tv series they've since made a sequel they uh it was called monsters dark continent but gareth edwards didn't write or direct it and didn't follow any of the characters from the original movie it, it took off in a different direction um and now it turns out they're they've uh revive talks of a tv series um with vertigo films and the intention is to have it air on channel four in the united kingdom so right now they're working on uh, getting that together um it's the the creator of the british crime series top boy ronan bennett is going to be the the showrunner for it uh and there's this kind of up-and-coming writing duo uh jennifer jemison duncan and marlon smith who sold an original sci-fi pitch called red star to warner brothers are going to write the script for the series and we don't really know what the series will be about, what kind of characters it will follow or anything like that, just that it'll be set um, in a, a similar kind of world as, as monsters. It's not, it's not even said if whether or not it exists in the same universe that the first Monsters movie takes place, or if they'll just kind of just start over fresh and set up a, a similar world that doesn't uh, exist in the same world as the original movie. Um, but there's a lot of potential here. This, this could be a really cool... Uh, sci-fi universe especially in serial form there's a lot of uh avenues that could be explored in a series like this and anybody who saw monsters can tell you uh it's not really necessary for a, mo a show like this to have a huge budget because one of the coolest things about monsters was how economical gareth edwards um edwards was with the visual effects that he actually did himself in the movie uh by making the monsters aren't like a huge part of it they they're more so lurking in the background and create this uh a certain vibe and, and ambiance of being this mysterious uh you know sci-fi setting so it'll be interesting to see if they can translate that into a serial form or if they'll just kind of borrow the idea and turn it into something uh different maybe along the lines of like the mist or something like that i mean i think the smart thing would to copy that formula from from the movie because you know he used these real life locations that had been kind of destroyed uh, by you know what you call or whatnot, um, and he you know kind of used the Jaws uh, ideology of you know keeping the monster kind of just off camera and keeping that uh, tension and that uh, making it kind of a thriller more than a uh, horror film. And uh, I, I think that's probably the smart way of doing a TV version of this. Uh, no word if uh, this would ever uh, be released in the U.S., but a lot of these, like, Channel 4 stuff. Um, well, they did. Uh, they actually did say that they um, they are already in talks with getting okay. some kind of 
U.S. partner, and like uh, Netflix and Amazon are among them. So we'll, they're, they're in the works and figuring that out. Yeah, I was just going to say Netflix has done that quite a bit in the past. So I, I would not be surprised to see this on Netflix. But uh, that does it for the news. Brad, where can we find more of your work online? Always writing on SlashFilm.com. You can also catch me on Twitter at Ethan underscore Anderton. And uh, check out my podcast called Go Flix Yourself, F-L-I-X, on iTunes and other podcasting platforms. Ben, where can we find more of you? You can find me on SlashFilm.com as well. And uh, you can track me down on Twitter at Ben Pears. And now in our feature presentation, we have Jacob Hall's Top 10 Movies of 2017. And joining me for that is, you guessed it, Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Uh, so, Jacob, it has been a great year in movies. Uh, how would you classify this year in film? This was a really angry, sad year. I, I, I think it's because we're reading a lot into the current climate where everybody seems miserable. But a lot of the movies on my list, a lot of the best movies of the year, are movies full of people being extremely anxious and sad and depressed or longing for something they can't have. And it's it's a coincidence because not, we didn't know what 2017 was going to be like when people started making these movies. But I do feel like people are connecting with even the most entertaining movies on this list are often about people in extreme distress. So I feel like more than ever, 2017 was a year where movies as therapy really did come to fruition. Okay, let's start right now with your number 10 movie, Raw. Yeah, Raw is interesting because I saw it in 2016 during uh, the film festival circuit. And it hit theaters and uh, VOD and Blu-ray, all that, in 2017. And the fact that it's it's hung around in my mind, enough to make my top 10 since then, it should tell you a lot. It was a horror film about a uh, a young girl who leaves home, goes to veterinary school, first time away from her parents. And at first, it's this really haunting and sad and relatable story of being away from home for the first time of that homesickness of trying to find your place in a new culture and trying to make new friends. And then she starts having a hankering for human meat and it's a cannibal movie. And it's a really grisly, nasty, grotesque cannibal movie. And the way it balances these two genres is remarkable. And the performances are all fantastic. Uh, Garen's Marie's Justine, the lead character is remarkable. Uh, Julia Ducournau is the director. Hope I got her name correct there. And it's just very feminine film, very feminine perspective. And I was able to try to wrap my brain around concepts and ideas that, as a man, I, I, I said, oh, I did not understand that or realize that uh, about about women. And it was a really good conversation starter with me and my female friends about how so many coming-of-age movies, even horror ones, are about men. And this one is not. And it's made by women. And it's also has enough gory craziness to attract everybody else so really great movie um number nine on your list is guillermo del toro's the shape of water yeah we've talked about this movie a lot on the podcast i don't want to go too long but this is what dark universe should have been uh instead of wasting 150 million dollars on the mummy give geniuses 20 million dollars to make these monster movies that aren't action films but actually get to the heart of what made the universal monster so special to begin with which is these character-driven haunting tragedies that are cheap enough and character-driven enough to um, attract a non-blockbuster audience and, and be modest hits. I would have loved to have seen 10 more movies in this vein instead of one failed Mummy movie. And I, at the same time, though, um, I'm, I'm glad Del Toro got to make his, his Universal Monsters movie. Is this Creature in Black Lagoon with a, with a huge soul? 
and I love it to death. It's just such a beautiful film. And yeah. speaking of beautiful films, number eight on your list, uh, Blade Runner 2049. Yeah. Is this the most beautiful looking movie of the year in terms of visuals, Peter? I, I think it is. I think almost uh, every frame of this movie could be printed out and hung on your wall. Um, I know, like, you know, uh, George Lucas did that book of Star Wars, Star Wars Frames, where he took out, like, his favorite frames from the movie. Uh, I, I want to see a book of that, of this movie. Like, you know, yeah. it's just a, such a stunning film. And I think the most remarkable thing about it, beyond it looking incredible, is that this is an expensive blockbuster-level movie that is a Blade Runner movie. I thought I was going to get a movie set in the Blade Runner universe that was going to be a little more traditional, a little bit more accessible. And instead, it's three hours long, slowly paced, built on ideas, interested in questions, not answers. And it was a box office disappointment. We, we all know that. But it's a pure Blade Runner movie. It's science fiction that wants to get into your head and wants you to ask questions and wants you to embrace his ideas. Um, I've always been a sucker for science fiction about the idea of do does artificial life have rights? Do do does artificial intelligence and things that aren't that are human created once we give them purpose, once we give them uh, a stake in existence, how do we treat them? And Blade Runner is interested in that, and not just in the way that the first one was, which was we hunt them down and we kill them. This one is okay. We've integrated them in society, but we don't take care of them. It's it's times past. Things should have gotten better, and they haven't. So it, it's building on the ideas of the first movie in a way that the best sequels do. And it, it just looks so good, and I like talking about it, and I like getting lost in it. It's a, an amazing movie. For sure. Uh, number seven on your list goes a little bit smaller, and that is the Sundance uh, Sensation. Hello? I'm oh, sorry. What was Let's start that one over. Can you hear me? And number seven on your list, we're going to go a little smaller with the Sundance Sensation, The Big Sick. Oh, man. I feel like we give short shrift to romantic comedies because there are five or six romantic comedies, let's say, that are so definitive and are such clear-cut masterpieces that we measure them all against it. And I don't think anybody, any audience, when they look, see a new rom-com, they say, okay, is it as good as The Apartment? Is it as good as When Harry Met Sally? Or studios say, oh, these movies are disposable junk food. Why should we try to make them special when when be playing by the book and following a familiar template has worked for so long. And the big sick is just a middle finger to all of that. It's, it's this extremely sweet, extremely personal, extremely well-made rom-com uh, written by Camille Nanjiani and Emily V. Gordon about their relationship directed uh, by Michael Showalter. And it's not a showy movie. Uh, it's not trying to rewrite what a rom-com can be. It's just taking all those familiar elements and injecting them with enough specificity that becomes personal and relatable. And I feel like so many rom-coms are playing so broadly that they can never connect with you because no one's experience in real life is broad. Nobody's romance is uh, the same as somebody else's. And the big sick realizes that by going as specific and as personal and sometimes as embarrassing as it does, it unlocks a universal truth. uh, And it does it while being really funny. And I'd, I'd say it's one of the best rom-coms ever made, hands down. I've seen it three times now, and it gets better every time. I love that film so much. Um, and uh, what other rom-com are you going to see where one of the leads is in a coma for most of the movie? 
<laughs> um, number six on your list is also a very small effort, uh, but very effective, and that is the Florida Project. Yeah, the Florida Project, it's been on a few number one slots on our top ten list so far, so I don't want to dwell on it too much because Chris and HT both named the best movie of the year, and they'll, they'll, they've said things that I will just be repeating. So I just want to talk about one scene. There's a tiny scene that I keep thinking about, which is where uh, the motel manager played by Willem Dafoe is in his office, and a group of children whose families live in a hotel, impoverished, 15 minutes from Disney World, is, uh, they run in playing hide-and-seek, and he's asking them to leave, and he's annoyed by them, and they crawl under his desk, and are messing with his computer monitor. And one of the first performances is remarkable because he's clearly annoyed. This is clearly an inconvenience for him. They're, they're really getting in his way. But he can't stop smiling. He can't stop like shaking his head like amused by them. And you realize that this guy, Willem Dafoe is like a secret weapon here because he looks tough, he looks gruff, and you realize that he wants nothing but happiness for these kids. He'll tell them to leave, but he is overjoyed to have them there. And that's the movie in, in a nutshell for me is the idea of blending sadness with humor and uh, hope with dead ends. The idea that in one moment you can be these two things based on your perspective and based on what you know about the world versus what you don't. And the way the movie plays with adult and child perspective to let you in and out of both points of view is remarkable and beautiful. And it's only not higher because I have issues with the ending, which I know Chris and HT have both uh, uh, told me I'm wrong about, but so it goes. Well, I agree with you on the ending, Uh, but let's go on to your number five, which is a lot of critics, number one film. And that's called me by your name. This movie is incredible. I, I do think, the highlight here is the central relationship between uh, Elio and Oliver, played by Timothy Chalamet and Army Hammer. It is this beautiful relationship uh, between uh, two young men in Italy in 1983. And it is real. It, it is hard-hitting. And it goes to places that really affected me emotionally. But I'm especially impressed by director Luca... I'm going to butcher his name. I apologize. Luca Guadagnino. Italian filmmaker, and he, the way he establishes a sense of time and place, the way he sort of lulls you into this lazy Italian summer, he lets you get to know the house where everybody is staying, he lets you get to know all these minor supporting characters who don't add to the plot, but they're always around. And there's so much love in this movie, the way he loves his location, he loves these characters, he loves the way people interact with each other, he loves that these people love each other, and... By the time the movie's over, you feel like it's been your summer. It's not just a summer where Oliver and Elio had a passionate affair and fell in love and broke each other's hearts, but it's a summer where you get to experience that with them. And it's more immersive than any VR experience I've ever had, which is, sounds a little cheesy, but I, I do feel like I I really experienced it with them. And uh, the, the next film on your list is a film that did very well at the Golden Globes recently, and that is Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Yeah, this one has been getting some backlash on on film Twitter and amongst other writers. It's it's not as universally beloved as Florida Project or Call By Your Name, which is why I struggle with it, trying to figure out was I incorrect for liking it so much. And I think the answer is that. Um, no, I'm not incorrect. I, I think that's a, it is a challenging movie. It's a movie. It's a movie about very angry people making poor decisions and 
stumbling toward redemption and most likely never finding it. And it's not interested in playing fair or being nice, having a positive message or presenting characters whose politics and beliefs are in any way admirable. Nobody in this movie makes right decisions, but I feel that the movie positions them to in, in a way where you understand where they're coming from and understand their pain and anger. And then it watches you, lets you sit by and watch them process it in all the wrong ways. And it does it while also being really funny. Uh, Martin, director and writer Mark McDonough's screenplay is hilarious. Uh, but it's, all, it's, also, it's also challenging. I, I think that it, 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 it doesn't want you to approve of these characters. It wants you to watch them and cringe, but at the same time understand why these people would do this. And I'm not going to argue against somebody disliking it, but I, I do think that uh, it's a movie that's worth reconsidering if you've been hearing the the very the, the backlash that I that's been driving me crazy recently. Yeah, it, it, the backlash is weird. I do think this is a film worth watching, and I do love what it does with the protagonist and antagonist, and uh, you know, at times, you know, they're they're switching positions, and I think that's very interesting. Um, and I love uh, uh, Sam. Um, Who's the Sam actor? Rockwell? Sam Rockwell, what he does in this film. Uh, it, it, it's it's uh, some great work. Uh, but number three on your list is Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk. Uh, Christopher Nolan's best movie. If, if, I, I, I will go that far. It. I think the reason why a lot of people were prepared to write off Dunkirk, myself included, is that the evacuation of Dunkirk, the strategic retreat of Allied troops in the early days of World War II, it seems like a license to make a very generic war movie. You know, brave men, last stands, speeches, patriotism. And I think is Dunkirk has all of that. It has all these familiar elements you've seen in a lot of war movies. But the structure is experimental as anything you'll see in any mainstream movie released in 2017 or beyond. Where it intercuts between men on the beach of Dunkirk taking place over a week. Civilian ships come to the rescue of the soldiers of Dunkirk taking place over a day. And pilots rushing to the aid of Dunkirk taking place over an hour. So all these events exist in a feature-length montage where they're tied together by music and sound editing. And Hans Zimmer's score has this constant ticking clock built into the pace of it. So everything is tied together by time. And you start realizing that all these characters are facing time in some way. The soldiers on the beach have too much time sitting there waiting, waiting to die. The soldiers on the planes have too little time to get to the rescue. And it's just, it, it's this furious and intense assault almost where you are put into perspective of the anxiety of realizing time is the enemy. And it, it, and Christopher Nolan does this really experimental approach while also filling in characters in very small, subtle ways like Mark Violence's uh, boat captain or Tom Hardy's pilot, these characters who have very little dialogue so they have to give, tell you pages of information with like a glance of the eyes or a flicker of the mouth and it's practically a silent film you can cut all the dialogue out and tell the exact same story and i just love that christopher nolan made a world war ii movie that has all the elements that you and your dad want in a world war ii movie <laughs> while also being something as avant-garde as this and that tickles me it tickles me that christopher nolan is using his power to really experiment and try new things I don't know. I, I mean, I, I do love the filmmaking achievement that this is, but I do feel 
you're starting to sell me on this uh the the, the three different times being intercut but as a uh storytelling experience i feel like it's very uh jarring and confusing and it doesn't uh I don't think that t- the cutting between those is rewarding as an experience in, in in as a whole and not in the concept that you're presenting to me. But uh, but uh, I am in the minority here. So <laughs> um, let's talk about your number two film, and that is John Wick Chapter Two. I struggled with this because I wrote an article earlier this year on Slash Film. It was thousands of words explaining my love for John Wick Chapter Two. Well, my favorite things I've ever written. It, when the time came to do make my top ten, it wasn't in consideration. It, it was made on my honorable mentions. And I sat down. I really thought about. it. I said, "Why am I not putting John Wick Chapter Two in my top 10? And I realized that it's because I feel like the best pop entertainment is stuff that we often don't allow ourselves to appreciate for decades. I'm thinking back, maybe Die Hard is an example of a movie that's now in the National Film Registry, considered a masterpiece, a classic. People put it on top ten lists of all time, but. I, no one in the 80s was going to say, oh, Die Hard's the best film of its year. Although I think people can make the argument now. So I started saying, how do I feel about John Wick in 20 years? How do I feel about John Wick Chapter 2 after I let myself digest it and think about it and appreciate it for a long time? And after watching this movie five or six times over the course of the year, I realized, no, this is pop entertainment at its best. It is blending Hong Kong-style action with like with South Korean uh, insanity levels of plotting with American comic book world building and it's doing it built around Keanu Reeves as absolute best directed by Chad Stileski, a former stuntman who knows how to sell action better than anybody else making action movies today. And I just, I decided that it, there's no other film um, on this list that I enjoyed more. I flat out take pleasure in watching and take pleasure in wanting to learn more about this world. It is action movie Star Wars for me in that way. I want there to be, I want to explore the John Wick universe forever. And I want it to be done with as much craft and care as this movie has. And I'll go as far as to say it's probably my favorite action movie of the past 10, 15 years. Better than the first John Wick. Oh, really? Better, you, you, uh, yeah. you think the action in this movie is better than the original John Wick? 100%. Hmm. See, I I think I need to watch them both again back to back. But when I saw John Wick 2, I was impressed by the world building. And I I, I did think that the action wasn't as good as the original. But maybe that was me going into the original John Wick with low expectations and going into this and with, you know, exceedingly high expectations. But um, there's a there's a level of um, first one has a down and dirty uh, vibe to it that I love. This one has a bigger budget by far. And they take advantage of it. The, the, the shootouts are so detailed. The fistfights are so brutal. There's there's a sense of comedy to it. Like it's almost even though Jackie Chan was never a, a a killer in his movies, I always enjoyed how there was a comic timing to his physical violence. That even though John Wick is bloodier than Jackie Chan ever was, um, there's a Buster Keaton esque sense of setup and payoff uh, that uh, I think ties all these names together and i in a weird way keanu reeves and john wick is doing jackie chan who's doing buster keaton and i find that but i find that so far up my alley that i it lives inside of me it is a movie that i could watch over and over again okay finally let's talk about your number one film of 2017 and that is jordan peele's get out uh get out is i i feel underqualified to talk about it i write about this in my top 10 on that was published on the site Whereas it's, I think it's a great movie because it's scary. It's a great horror film. It's 
a great movie because it's smart. Its satire is so sharp and it cuts so deep. It's a great movie because it's funny. Uh, it's it, it uses humor at the key points to like really really allow you to force your way through the harsh parts of the movie. And Jordan Peele is a filmmaker. I, he arrives so fully formed. This is his first movie, and I can't wait to see what he does next. But the reason Get Out stuck with me, and the reason why I think it tops this list, is that I left the theater the first time I watched it saying, that was a great movie, I'm sure of it, but I know I'm missing something. And it's a movie made by a black director about the black experience in America, and it convinced me that I needed to do more reading. So I started seeking out writers of color um, and people who have whose cultural backgrounds inform them in different ways than me. And I started picking up on things that I would never have noticed. Uh, details that were not made for me. They were made for people who have different backgrounds than me. And I started realizing that watching this movie and then embracing it after the fact and doing my research and finding out all the little things I couldn't find were making me better informed, making me a better person, they're making me more empathetic. And it made me realize the satisfaction of seeing a movie from somebody who is different than you, somebody whose cultural experience is, is so not yours, but whose filmmaking is so assured that makes you want to understand them more. And that was a very powerful experience for me. And even though I think the movie is a great movie on its own, the overall effect of letting that linger and letting myself learn uh, propels it into an all-timer for me. See, this is another film I'm in the minority on, uh, no pun intended. Uh, I, th- I, You know, I think... I think it's not a great horror movie or a great comedy, but it is a great social political movie. And I think that's its strong point. But I, I, I wasn't scared in this movie. And I, you know, there were moments where I laughed, but I, you know, I wouldn't put this up there with, you know, uh, the big sick or in terms of comedy. But uh, I'm sure I'm going to get 100 emails telling me I'm wrong. Uh, I do appreciate, uh, your take on it and how it, uh, made you a better person. And I, I, if, if any movie can do that, uh, it deserves to be number one on your top 10 list. Yeah. Uh, like I said, I, I'm not going to, I have a very strong belief in not belittling people for, 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 for disliking movies. I like, I mean, I really hope that someday get out connects to you the same way connected with me. Yeah. But it's, I feel like this was such a strong year overall and I, I think feel like every movie on my list in some way sums up something about this year for me and i feel like the anxieties and joys of get out uh when i, when I think back to 2017 the piece of art that will sum it up will be get out hmm. interesting um well anyways where can people find more of your work online jacob i am on slash com every single day and i am on twitter where i am at jacob s hall uh, you can find more of me at Slash Home on Twitter. You can find all the stories we mentioned here uh, today on uh, Slash Home.com and linked in the show notes. Uh, you can listen to this podcast, Slash Home Daily, published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, all the popular podcast apps. Please send us an email, peter at Slash Home.com, with your feedback, questions, concerns. Uh, and if uh, you mention your name and general geographic location in case we mention it on the air. And, uh, We will uh, see you tomorrow.